All right, what a pleasure. I bring greetings from Christ Covenant Church in Hernando, your sister church, brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a day uh, to be together. We get to celebrate the supper. We, get, uh, we observe covenant baptism. Uh, members have joined. Your church is flourishing. It's, this is great. It's a great day. And uh, we're going to take a, a few moments and just look into God's word and see what else he would have to say to us today about the events of the day and the mission connection and all the things that God is doing at Grace Community Church. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? It's also in your worship folder if you want to just flip there. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's hear what God says to us in his word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Only you can make it alive to us. Other than that, it's just words. And so we long to hear from you by your spirit in Christ's name, amen. So it's a season of missions emphasis for Grace Church, and uh, I hope to encourage you in some of your current strategies for missions and reaching your neighborhood and around the world, Uh, but I also have some additional thoughts to challenge you with from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see, the church at Thessalonica is the result of a mission trip, as all new churches are. Paul was sent out, we say sent out, right? He tried to go here, God said no. He tried to go there, God said no. He tried to go that direction, God said no. You can only go this way, Paul. You can only go this way. So God moved him out of Asia Minor and into Macedonia. And there, by the way, that was also on the heels of a personality clash between Paul and Barnabas who would no longer travel together. Even in the church, we have problems, right? Even in the church, we have difficulty and God uses that even that, to accomplish his will. And so Paul moves into Macedonia to preach the gospel, and here's how he did it. He would go to a local area, and he would find a synagogue, if there was one, and he would begin teaching the scriptures from the Old Testament. And he would use those scriptures to point to Jesus, which they all do, as the Messiah. And so Paul would go from city to city, and that would be his pattern. And in Acts chapter 17, here's what we're told. Paul came out of prison. By the way, there are times when if you are going to speak or um, be a vessel for God's instrument, difficult days come. So Paul gets out of prison in Philippi and makes his way to Thessalonica. And when he gets there, he finds the synagogue. 
and he starts preaching. And the Bible says he's there for three weeks. And in that three weeks, problems start to emerge. It doesn't take long. The opposition was so riled up that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are then run out of town, and now they're heading along the coast of Greece, heading south. But over time, Paul wonders about this church. What's become of them? And so he takes Timothy and sends him back and says, go and find out how they're doing. Timothy does that and comes back to Paul in Corinth. Are you tracking with me? You with me? You there? Paul is is now reunited with Timothy back in Corinth, and here's Timothy's report. There is great news about what's going on in Thessalonica. And, Paul, there's some problems. And so this is the first letter Paul ever writes. I'll say that again. This is the first epistle Paul ever writes is to this church at Thessalonica. And our time today is to look into this first chapter and glean just a few truths about gospel mission. Here they are. What happens when the gospel comes to town? Number two, how does the gospel leap from place to place? And then finally, how does the gospel endure in spite of all the obstacles that it faces? How does it endure? So our first point is this, that the gospel comes in power. When Paul says that the gospel came to the Thessalonians, if you look at it again, not only in word, did you catch that? But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's describing the transformative influence of the gospel in the life of the Christian. He's describing what happened to me at 19 years old. He's describing what happened to you, either in your home as you grew up in a Christian home or if you came into the church from the outside. He's describing what happened to you. And you've been trying to figure it out ever since. What happened to me? What took place? That the gospel is a set of words. It is a message but it's not just that. It is also, it's a, it's a message about the person and work of Christ, but it's not just words. How do you know if the gospel has come, in, come to you, not just in word, but also in power? Here are the things that you can look for. Number one, you begin to realize that the message of the gospel is causing you some discomfort in your life. You recognize that the message of the gospel is not just taking up your time in church on Sunday, but it's also taking up some time in your private thoughts. You're starting to wrestle with things on your own time. You're thinking about things that you didn't think about before. Number two, you begin asking the big questions of this life. Who is God? What is the purpose of this life for me? Who am I? These are the questions our culture is asking right now in droves, right? Is there a God? What's the purpose of this place? And who am I? Number three, you realize that these questions that you're wrestling with are accompanied by pivotal moments in life. Here are just a few. A relationship in crisis or a job offer that you wanted to consider or being passed over for an opportunity that you really, really wanted. And in the midst of those circumstances... As Tim Keller says, you realize that the power of the gospel is not just you wrestling with questions and issues, but in that, someone is engaging with you. Someone, by some power, is engaging with you during those times. That someone is Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit is to point you to him and to bring these questions. Who am I? Who is God? What did Jesus do? Who, what is that all about? 
The Spirit brings those to bear on your heart. It's also the work of the Spirit to bring you to full conviction about the claims of Jesus. And this causes more difficulty. It does. Because once you are convinced about who Jesus is, hear me, once you are convinced about who Jesus is and what he came to do, you realize that you have to stop bargaining with him and acknowledge that he can ask you whatever he wants. And that is life-changing. And that's transformative. Believing upon him and turning from your sin is what makes you Christian to begin with. You start recognizing the work of Christ in your life and the lives of others. And your life starts aligning with what he says. That's what happens. And sometimes with great difficulty. Here are some of the specific things that happen when Jesus is engaging with you. You begin to have an affection for him. Not just knowledge, but a real affection for who he is and what he did. The discussion about Jesus is not awkward anymore because it's someone who loves you and that you're starting to love as well. You begin to understand the importance of the community that he makes you a part of. We call that the church. You understand that the church is filled with problems. It is. All churches are. But Jesus is using the church to change the world through the gospel. You begin to move the furniture around in your life figuratively. You want to make priorities that Jesus makes. You want your priorities to be his priorities and his priorities to be your priorities. You want to rearrange the furniture in your life. Here are some of the things I mean by that. Stuff, just stuff we buy. All of a sudden, priorities change. Vacations, where to go, what we're gonna do. Your search and thirst for power and influence, that that starts getting changed. The next house that you wanna buy, you start reconsidering that. All become secondary considerations to what God wants you to do. You consider giving to be more important than taking. That's what happens when Jesus, when the gospel comes to town. Giving becomes more important than taking. And you want to be generous just as God was generous with you. You realize he has given you everything. And you wonder, what else can I return to him? in gratitude for what he's done. What else can I give? Can I, can I give this? Can I give, can I give more? You begin to think that way. You stop measuring others by your own life and your decisions, and you begin to evaluate yourself and other people by what Jesus says and what he does. And then finally, you move away from trying to save yourself, which is what you tried to do your whole life before you knew Jesus. You move away from trying to save yourself and instead you look to him as your deliverer. It's why uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 that the gospel came to them. It wasn't just words. It was a power. It was a person that came to them. It's the powerful message about Jesus Christ. And Jesus engages those who are without purpose, like me, and without hope, like me, and brings them to faith and repentance by the Spirit. But the gospel doesn't just come to you as a Christian. It it does. Paul says it. It came to you as a power. But it also goes from you, which is our second point. 
that the gospel goes in proclamation. Are you following the movement so far? The gospel came, and now the gospel goes. It comes to you, and by the grace of God, makes you his, and then in true mission fashion, it goes out in proclamation. It moves you into action in sharing the gospel and its truth with those in your life. This is how you know if a church is healthy, Grace Community Church, Christ Covenant Church. This is how you know if a church is healthy, that the gospel comes to town and then reverberates from your church as good news to those around you and around the world. That's how you know the gospel's come to town, near and far, home and across borders. It was that way for the Thessalonians, Paul says. Not only did they receive the gospel that came to them, but they were also careful to give it back to their neighbors, both nearby and around the region. And did you catch in that passage what Paul says, the obstacles and distances that the gospel overcomes? Here's what he says, that it it came and it goes and it overcame all their affliction. Now just track with it for a second. Paul and Silas and Timothy get run out of town. But that's not the end of difficulty for those who believe the gospel. Those who stayed behind, those same people, you know they were giving them trouble. You know they were persecuting those Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul says, and the gospel still went forth from you. Surely the same treatment that Paul received is what they received. And yet, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians still saw the gospel go forth. Secondly, he says it was an encouragement towards other believers around the area in joy that other people saw what was happening to the church in Thessalonica and those believers were encouraged by what they saw and heard. They saw joy. The Thessalonians became examples of following Jesus to other believers. And then lastly in that passage, he says it also had this obstacle to overcome that it the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Turning from idols includes all the biggies that you deal with every day, money, sex, power, all those are idols. Jesus deals with those all the time in your life and in mine. But those aren't the only things that people put their ultimate value in. Here are some others that you have to kind of watch out for because they're really good things but you can make them ultimate things. If your children or the raising of your children, how you do it, where you do it, if that's what you get your ultimate value from, if you're putting everything on that, you have an idol to turn from to serve the living and the true God. If you think that your marriage is the end-all, be-all of your existence You have an idol to turn from, to serve the living and the true God. If you think getting married would be the thing that finally makes you worthy, it finally is going to give you status, you have an idol that you need to turn from and serve the living and the true God. That is the kind of proclamation that was sounding forth from the Thessalonian church. And in doing so, the Thessalonians avoided a major mistake that lots of churches make. They did not view proclamation as the work of a special class of Christians. I'll say that again. 
the Thessalonian church avoided a huge mistake that lots of churches make, that somehow the proclamation of the gospel is the, that's the, that's the purview of a special class of Christians, not me. One of the signs of life and health of a church, of the Thessalonians in particular, was that they did not view it that way. In perhaps the best report that anybody could ever receive from the Apostle Paul came when he said, we got to other places in the region, in Macedonia, in Achaia, and on the Greek peninsula, and we found that the, your testimony that the gospel was sounding forth from you and got there before us and we didn't have to say anything. That is amazing. That's amazing. Most of us understand Western missions this way. Someone else goes. We hang back and pray. We collect offerings and we send it to them. That's how most of Western missions has been viewed for a very long time. Or we consider the gift of our pastors uniquely called by God to lead churches. And we think of them as the conduit for the gospel being proclaimed in this community. And we try to encourage them in that. You try to encourage Ashley. Keep going. Be encouraged. We love you thinking that he is the conduit for the gospel in this community. And that may be your role, by the way. It may be your call is to encourage him. I'll say this, it is. You have a calling under Jesus to encourage your pastor. You have a calling under Jesus to support missions efforts here and around the world. You do. But if you think that calling is for them to go and proclaim then you have made a mistake. The Thessalonian church knew this very well, that they had a responsibility to reach their neighbors, that they had a responsibility to have impact in their community, that they had a responsibility to make sure that it went beyond just their region. There is a great book, a short little book, but it is really good. It's called The Great Omission, and it's by Steve Saint. Steve Saint's dad is Nate Saint, And in the 20th century, perhaps the most famous missionary story of the entire century happened to Steve Saint's dad. Nate Saint and four other missionaries were flying onto a sandbar and had an encampment there where they're trying to reach people in in Quito, Ecuador. They're trying to reach a tribe. And while they're engaging with that tribe, that tribe ends up spearing all five of those men. Steve's dad dies on that sandbar that day. And the news went out back in the 50s and and spread around the world and giving went through the roof. And mission efforts were on fire, right, as a result of that story. But Steve, as a small boy when his dad was speared, went back to that mission effort in Ecuador and noticed that there was a huge problem. And in his book, The Great Omission, he basically summarizes this that that mission effort by his parents in Ecuador was viewed as the Americans coming and doing ministry. And that when they finished ministry there, the Americans would just go to the next place and start doing ministry there. And that the people in, in Quito had no responsibility to reach there. It was never said this way. Those missionaries never said it this way. 
But the perception was that the Americans had the resources. The Americans had all the the vision and the thinking. And so they let them set up base there and then move to the next place. Well, Steve Saint writes this book called The Great Omission, basically says what I just told you about the Thessalonian church. It is your responsibility to reach your neighborhood. It is my responsibility to to reach my family, my children, my grandchildren. I have a responsibility there. It's my responsibility to minister in my church unto the glory of Jesus. It's my responsibility in my neighborhood to reach out and share Christian love and gospel news to them. And Steve Saint, his entire book is about this, that that mission effort missed the point of discipling the people of Ecuador so that they might go and reach their neighbors. Don't fall into that trap. Yes, support missions efforts and help fund missionaries and Christian work around the world. But no, please don't conclude that the work of evangelism and discipleship belong to the professionals. Quote. Yes, pray for your pastor and encourage him in every way that you can to preach the gospel. But no, don't conclude that it's his work to carry the message of Jesus in your place. You are the conduit of good news if you belong to Jesus. It comes to you in power and goes out from you in proclamation. For the Thessalonians, Paul's concern for their health as a church was quieted and overwhelmed by the vibrant gospel effort where he says it sounded forth everywhere from them. So the gospel comes in power The gospel goes in proclamation. And finally, the gospel returns in promise. This is that last verse, or the portion of that last verse from chapter one. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In this passage and others later in this letter, and then Paul writes a second letter to that church. He brings up this topic He commends the church at Thessalonica for their faithfulness in spite of major obstacles, but he also commends them because they were anticipating the return of Jesus. They believed he was coming for them. I believe Jesus is coming for me. You should believe that Jesus is coming for you and pray that it's quick and pray that it's soon. And that's not, this anticipation or the the waiting for Jesus, it's not what you think. It's not just a yearning for a better place. They were waiting for him. It's not like uh, a very passive enterprise, this waiting thing. Waiting in the sense is not like being put on hold on a call and just waiting. Or sitting in a room in preparation for the dentist or the doctor to call you back. That's not what this waiting is. Waiting in the Bible is extremely active and important. It's used over and over again, this waiting for Jesus, be ready for my return, to encourage us to activity, to effort, to work. Here are some of the things that are included in that. Love your spouse unto the glory of Christ. That is actively waiting for Jesus right now. Raising your children to love Jesus, that is actively waiting for him. Serving in your church, all that, 
That's actively waiting for Christ. Paul later tells the Thessalonians that doing the work of their vocation, their job, the thing they do to make money, earning a living as Jesus has called us to do is faithful waiting. It is. He says that God uses that, that work of vocation to sanctify us and to make us more and more, Paul says, like Jesus. And waiting's supposed to have a couple of good outcomes. Here are a couple of good things that come if you are actively waiting for Jesus. Number one, it sharpens your faith, moves you to prayer. It grows in you a longing for your real home. And that's part of our issue, right? We start loving this place. There are, there are really good things about this place. There are really good things about the world around us. But man, waiting actively for Jesus should make us turn loose of that and prepare for our real home. Second, it should bring into crystal clear focus what really matters. In other words, you'll have choices like this, something good and something better. And waiting for Jesus will help you to choose the better. Lots of good things you could be doing. There are lots of better things you could give your time to. I'm saying that to me. I'm saying that to you. Third, it reminds us that as Christians, waiting for Jesus reminds us as Christians that we are supposed to be about it. Not just thinking about it, not just talking about it, we are to be about it. We're to get our priorities in line with his. We're to develop plans and strategies for cultural impact and then execute those plans. Individually do this. As families we do this, should be. As churches, as presbyteries, as networks of churches and as denominations, we should be strategizing how are we gonna reach this world and let's be about it. It's one of the great joys of raising my kids with gospel mission. My kids were not surprised to come home from school and to find another missionary staying with us for a short visit. They were not surprised. Bulgaria, Kenya, Peru, South Africa, and Russia, just some of the nations that were represented in our upstairs room over the years. As they came to town, we've told people, we got a spot. Come stay with us. When the church said somebody was coming to visit, can we host them? Can we bring them upstairs? Can we give them a place? But it wasn't just brothers and sisters from all over the world crashing in our upstairs room. We also committed as a family to go see them from time to time where they are. And so we went to Kenya, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Togo, Peru, India, Germany, Malta, Ethiopia, Uganda, Madagascar. We wanted the kids to know what it was like to follow Jesus in places far more economically and politically charged than our neighborhood. We also wanted to help them see a few things about the church that only a good trip can teach you. Let me give you a couple of those and I'm done. First, that the church is the most diverse group of people on planet Earth. If you want to know the most diverse body on planet Earth, all you have to do is think about the church here and around the world. If you have this vision of what the church should be and how God is bringing people from every tribe and nation and tongue, get out and you'll see a lot of that. 
in the PCA, we're typically a pretty narrow demographic. It's not intentional. We don't, we don't want to just be one particular swath of our culture. It just turns out to be that way as we naturally move about things. But travel challenge you, challenges your kind of prejudged practices. You, you already have some opinion about the quality of a good building to worship in. You already have some opinion about food and not so much about food that's difficult to eat in other places. Or giving when you don't have anything to give. Music that may not necessarily suit your preference. But getting out there, actually getting out there to see your brothers and sisters can make a difference in those things. Second, that the church is far more influential than we see on our turf. In our space, in our place, we're like, uh, the church has got almost zero influence. It's not really so, even here. But around the world, you'll see that the church is having all kinds of good impact, either in number or just in influence. I've got stories to tell you from all over the place. It's a reminder of New Testament gospel mission that as it spreads out, it does so in grand fashion. It impacts kings and common folk like me. It changes neighborhoods, changes nations. Third, that the church is really more resilient than we observe. We're being told lately that Christianity and the church particularly is dying. And frankly, you can believe that press if you just kind of stew on it for a while. And in some ways, I would agree, nominal Christianity is going away. And that may not be a bad thing. But real, committed followers of Jesus are pressing on here and around the world. Don't believe all that you read about the demise of the church. She is thriving in many ways all over the world. I would love to say more. I could say, I could get a lot of time and tell you stories about what's happening. But I would just encourage you, get out there. Go see your brothers and sisters. Deciding to double down on your commitment to missions or giving or going, all of those are evidences of being transformed by the gospel, of the gospel coming to you, of the gospel going from you, and the gospel returning to you as we wait for Jesus to come for us, which gives us incredible sharp focus. Waiting for Jesus. But there'll be those among you, and as we wrap this up, those among you ask why. Why would you sacrifice the next vacation to go to a third world country? Or why the next big ticket item you want to buy? Why give that up and, and do something else with that money? Or your Sundays. Why? Why give that up when sometimes it's a lot of discomfort or social pain, a lot of social blowback for what you believe, what I believe, things that are changing in the law or in the culture and all the blowback that's coming. Why? Why would you put up with all that? Why would anyone endure suffering and sacrifice their own comfort and forego their seemingly good life goals for others? And the answer is so simple because that is what Jesus did for you who sacrificed everything so that you could flourish. Sacrificed everything so that you could have everything, suffered, gave up the glory of heaven to become one of us and to give to you what you didn't deserve, you didn't earn. 
The second reason is Paul says Jesus did actually come back from the dead. And because he did, his message is backed with power and with resurrection life. And we, you and I should live in gratitude because not only did Jesus bring life through his sacrifice, the Bible says he delivers us from the wrath to come, and it's coming. And it's coming. Believing that Jesus did everything necessary for your salvation empowers you to be like him. He gave himself that you might have joy so that we might go out and give joy to others. So what do you take home with you? Number one, the gospel is a power. It transforms you to look like him. The gospel should leapfrog from us to other places, impacting those around us. Your, your neighborhood, your community, your backyard, your home, and around the world. And then the gospel should continue to grow in our hearts and our efforts in seeing it spread because Jesus is coming back from us. And that should motivate, motivate us to gratitude and service, to giving and going, for he has delivered us from the wrath to come by his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and grateful for the example of the Thessalonians that even today rings and sounds forth to us. What it sounds forth is that there is a God in heaven who loves sinners. You loved us, came for us, and now you're sending us into our homes and communities and neighborhoods, helping us to fund efforts around the world. Help us, Father, to see your vision and to align our strategy with yours. We look forward to the day when we will see you, when you've delivered us from the wrath to come. Until then, we pray that you would give us strength and that Jesus would be honored and glorified. We pray it in his name. Amen.